you guys. I'm here with uh, Pablo Mayangunter. And he is a, well, he's the guy who wrote the Wikipedia on Younger Adrias. And he's also into long wave economics and he's got a lot of interesting stuff to say. So we're going to talk about, I guess we're going to talk about Earth ancients in a way or like our patterns of history. I also wrote for a while the, the article on Woot, the word Woot. Like W O O T? Yeah, well, W zero zero T. But I did too much original research, so they kicked me off that one. On I thought it was worthy of it. Yeah. Okay. But not not no, not off altogether. But that article, they they didn't let it stand. <laughs> I I had like bar charts in there. It was amazing, um, showing usage over time. So what is the what is the process of being a Wikipedia contributor look like? I've never actually done it. You just go. You show up and. Uh, you know, you, you suffer the withering criticism of people who live on the article. And if you can get through the. <laughs> the so what you have yeah. to basically, every time you add a sentence, you have to cite it. No, um, you know, it, it's, it's, everything is kind of within reason, right? So if you're going in and making typo changes and stuff, they're going to love it. Um, like when you do the edit, there's a little checkbox that says, this is a minor edit. Well, you know, if you're just doing something small then you just mark that um but uh if you're doing something more substantial as long as it's kind of like if you're good at english and editing if you have like an editor's eye that's always appreciated nobody's gonna really screw with you on that a lot of articles just need that kind of help um but if you're putting in content if you're trying to say something new or change something that's being said um then yeah like if you're making a claim then it needs to be backed up by a citation uh of not original research. It needs to be some sort of well-received publication somewhere. Yeah, but who checks the that that is well, what are the fact checkers? Who checks the fact checkers? I mean, like, what about okay. who checks the um whether that citation that you're using is, you know, worth worth looking it, it at? It just it typically it just comes down to some sort of common sense read, you know. Uh, you any given article, you know, if it's if it's on pop culture, it's going to be a totally different set of people sitting on it than something about history or science or whatever. And it's just who happens to be on the talk page of the article in recent history is probably going to know or care about the, the fate of that article. And you, you'll run into them and they might be a professor. They might be a retiree. They might be a you know teenager like, you know, you, you never know. Okay, so what what it was it about the young Adrias that attracted you to that? Like, what what about this subject got your attention for the very first time? Um, I since I'd been contributing to Wikipedia for a while, uh, I just saw that article and it was a um, it looked like there had been some fighting going on on it, and so I stepped in a little bit and just tried to clean up some of the the essay of it. Um, mostly for, for editing purposes, but then as I started to read in and, and, and to understand some of the arguments that were going on, um, I just really became fascinated with it because it's uh, it's probably like the biggest story that isn't told, you know, like yeah. uh, if it's true, all or not just it, but kind of the associated um, events, I guess, in history, then it, it kind of upends our traditional notion of, of history and how how humans kind of got kicked into the out of the stone age and into the into the the more modern developments of civilization okay so if you had to wikipedia it for people 
like I know the Young Adria stuff. I've studied a lot of it as well. But get let's give the Pablo take on like give the 101 of what this is for people. There was a can I curse? Absolutely. There was a big fucking rock and it hit Earth after the dinosaurs and actually you know shockingly recently. Twelve thousand six hundred years ago up to eleven thousand nine hundred years ago. Like Yeah, 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 yeah. And the dating, you know, the precision of the dating matters because it starts to tie into uh, other you know, evidence. Uh, most interestingly, I think, uh, that I've seen is the story of Atlantis in Plato's Dialogue the Timaeus, um, which is given a precise dating, which was always assumed to be um, you know, fictitious and mythological, uh, or at least serving that purpose within the, the uh, Platonic dialogue, Socratic dialogue. But, um, the dates are kind of, it's, it's obnoxious how they line up. Uh, I was just reading it to, to go, to get ready for this. And, uh, you know, it's like, what is it? So, you know, Plato is a, a real historical figure. He wrote these, these works where Socrates is, is the, the kind of main character. And they're, they're called the Socratic dialogues and they come from 300-ish BC, um, Greece, ancient Greece. And Socrates is kicking around talking with all these um, contemporaries of his about philosophical subjects. And he has just finished the, uh, the, the Republic and the Timaeus comes after that. And the Republic is all about the ideal state. Um, and then after that, they're kind of, they get into, they sit back and they're like, okay, so that's a great idea, but how does that actually apply to the real world? Do we have any examples of this? Um, and so they recite the story of Solon King Solon, who was uh, a king well before Socrates and Plato's time, I think in about 500 BC. So early, um, kind of like when you think, think of the movie th uh, 300, right? Like the, the Spartans and all that, that's more that period of time. Um, and they are, uh, King Solon, so it's about 200 years prior to, to Socrates. And so it's 500 BC and he goes to visit Egypt and the Pharaoh receives him. And, uh, and this is all the story that is related in, in, in Timaeus. Um, he goes to meet the Egyptians and the Egyptians are like, hey, what's up? Um, you know, we have, our societies have known each other for a very long time and you guys don't remember this because many disasters have come upon your land. You think that there was only one deluge. In fact, there's been many and the greatest deluge happened um, um, you know, many thousands of years ago. And Solon's like, okay, tell me, tell me the whole thing. What do I need to know? And they say, well, um, you were actually founded before us. Your city was founded 9,000 years ago, meaning Athens. Um, and it was the greatest on the earth. Uh, you were the most exalted, wonderful people. And you defended the whole region um, against the sea peoples from the, from the West, uh, which they go into. But you know, just to give you some note on precision, these, you know, uh, Pharaoh's scribes are telling the story, or the Pharaoh is relating what the scribes told him. And Athens is formed 9,000 years before 500 BC. Um, and uh, I guess uh, Cairo or wherever this is that, 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 that Solon is visiting is 8,000 years ago. So they made the distinction in the dialogue of what happened 8,000 years ago, Egypt was formed. 1,000 years even before that was Athens. And Athens was the, the defender of the Eastern Mediterranean against the, the vast empire of 
whoever was uh, in, up to the Tyrrhenian Sea, up to Italy, basically, all through the Western Mediterranean, there was this empire um, that they don't really give it a name. I think they may have say Athenians, but they, they named island. They say past the gates of uh, Heracles. The continent. Yes. They, three days sail past the, the gates of Heracles is a great land and beyond it a great ocean. Um, and that land is as big as Libya and Asia, which is uh, kind of incorrect, but I, I think archaic or um, ancient notion of Libya was just North Africa, uh, some area around like Carthage and, and such. And Asia, maybe it means Asia Minor, like Turkey or something like that, Anatolia. And so if you look at a map of the Azores, um, the current uh, islands of the Azores, they're what's left of this huge seamount. And that seamount, like a mountain range under the, under the waters in the mid-Atlantic, is actually the meeting of the three great tectonic plates on that part of the, the, the Earth's globe. There's the North American plate, the Euro Eurasian plate, and the African plate all come together right where the Azores are. And indeed, there's a mountain range that runs the entire length of the Atlantic from Greenland all the way down to uh, Patagonia um, in the middle of the Atlantic. But in that particular region, it's not just one ridge. There's also some kind of elevation coming from the uh, African plate. And so do you think that then maybe that was a direct hit like of, a, of, an, of a, an asteroid or do, yeah, okay. Not there. Um, they name this land multiple they say that there was multiple hits like it wasn't just yes so that we'll get to some uh, geology here in a second but sorry to be convoluted i'm just kind of like trying to remember the way that i think about it um so solon's listening to the story from the egyptians and the egyptians are like nine thousand years ago you defended us against those athenians once once you won over them this is the part that's a little mythical um you know their their land was swallowed up in in the ocean and so I think that was one of the things that probably readers and for thousands of years have been reading and being like, oh, that sounds goofy, you know, like the, the gods came, you know, Poseidon came and swallowed up the land or something. Um, and it does sound like that, but the timing's remarkable because if you take it, uh, if you add it up, you know, 500 BC minus 9,000 um, minus 2,000 is negative 11,500 years from now, right? So the, um, 2,000 years ago plus 500 years ago plus 9,000 years before that is 11,500 years ago, which is the end of the Younger Dryas period, which is a conventional um, the ice age. Uh, stratigraphic term within geology for, uh, it's, a, it's a inner, there's an intermediate period be between the ice age, which is very cold and the, the current um, Holocene, which is very warm. There's this inter intervening, there's the bowler axle rod, um, warming and then there's a rapid cooling which is the younger dryas and then a warming after that and we come up to the, the last 10,000 years during which civilization happened and the old story if you go back to like you know biblical uh you know medieval times we used to think that the earth was 4,000 years old and um just by doing the gene genealogies of the bible at least in the west right um and up into the probably 1800s, before kind of the dawning recognition of how old the world was because of you know evolution and, and astronomy starting to give us an idea of the size of the universe. Um, ideas of like 
you know, humans doing something significant before some thousands of years ago just were kind of un, unimaginable. Where, um, you know, we, we started to realize, say, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that humans have been around for a while. Uh, we probably evolved somewhere around a few million years ago. Um, you know, you see stone use and, and fire use between one and two and three million years ago. And then there's this just this kind of notion that I think we've had it up into very modern times that the, the Stone Age was humans living in caves, you know, it was just like um, the Flintstones, basically. And it's very different. And, and that at some point in the last 10,000 years after the Ice Age, since there was not ice around, we got, we finally decided to stop our million year slumber and become civilized. That was kind of the, right. the rough story that was being told for a long time. What's problematic about that is there's a, a couple of things, but like this, this dating that- What's problematic sorry. about that is megalithic sculpture, or megalithic um, architecture found all yes. around the world. Well, so that that is, only recently become kind of obvious right but if you go back to egyptology i guess um yeah they find a way to justify of the 1800s 1900s the the early dynasties were whatever uh, i think 3500 or something um for the first pyramid builders um but then you get the the kind of even more modern questioning of how old the sphinx is and such um but so there was kind of a story that held together which was that the Fertile Crescent and, and agriculture and civilization all start to happen, um, you know, somewhere around the bronze, early Bronze Age, something like that, you know, 4,000, 4, 6,000 years ago, BC. Um, but, and, and that all these stories that are kind of cross-culture, Mesopotamian, uh, uh, the Hebrews, uh, um, and I think even uh, uh, in the east, although I can't really cite anything, but of, of deluges. Uh, oh, I mean, of, of deluge. I mean, there's there's Native American prophecies of like, um, or uh, where they talk about like, um, giant tsunami that consumed all the land, and they went underneath with ant people into uh, like the Navajo. The Navajo nations have this this legend where they all went into the Grand Canyon to escape the water. You have. Wow. You have different um, South American stuff and like stuff in the codices that um, was destroyed, but some of it still exists within the Mayan culture of, of, I mean, if you look at like evidence, even written evidence of a deluge or a something that completely flooded everything or just, you know, some giant uh, catastrophe, there's stuff all over the world about that. Mm -hmm. Well, right. So I think because that did not agree with anything obviously acceptable within the um western the, within the kind of 1800s 1900s emerging scientism that was going on mm -hmm. it was just kind of all written off as myth um and this was also a time of struggle between the, the church and state you know as i say starting with galileo in, in the renaissance about how believable science was what was its role relative to the truths that were being passed down in the bible right and the bible remember said earth was four thousand years old um, and so eventually, you know, the cracks turned to, 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 to major problems in the foundation and, and people just start to, to look at it and reevaluate old evidence. And, 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 um, and I think that the, the stratigraphic reading was, was, was starting to be questioned. And, you know, that's where you start to get um, real archaeology and like, oh, well, dinosaurs are actually pretty old. Um, you know, the, 
many, many tens of millions of years, probably radio, radio iso, uh, isotope dating. Um, and also just like a, an understanding of how geological processes work. How long would it take to lay down layers of rock with, yeah. with certain ways of thing, right? Uh, ways of growth. So anyway, long tangent. Where were we? Solon, beyond the gates of Heracles, there's the Azores Plateau. It's about 2,000 meters below sea level. Um, and it, it's kind of unimaginable that, that that would have risen or fallen that much. Something truly titanic would have had to happen. The explanation that I heard was via um, Randall Carlson. Randall Carlson. Uh, and him saying that it was an isostatic rebalancing, meaning uh, from the melting of the glaciers. So the glaciers over North America, uh, I think were at their thickest uh, in the Northern hemisphere, uh, two to three kilometers in the, in the middle of Canada. And that, all that ice weighs a lot. Um, and when it melts, then that weight, you know, kind of goes into the ocean. The land which was holding all that weight goes up and the land which now has all that water goes down. So you have a rebalancing happen and that's, what, that's what they say happened to Doggerland, which was the land that connected um, like uh, modern day the UK to France. Yeah. Like there was, yeah. and that actually is during that time period, which I think is- Yes, and there's well, as far as I can tell, well accepted um, uh, evidence of sea level change. Like they'll see, you know, basically smooth stones, hundreds of meters uh, below sea level uh, that are typically evidence of waves washing up onto a shore and, and smoothing the stones out over time. Um, but uh, that's only a few hundred meters and to, to, to make the story of Atlantis work, you would need uh, a couple thousand meters. Um, I don't know that anybody has done that work. Uh, you know, that's, that's a current area of interest to see if there's been any kind of like deeper ocean surveys of, of the Azores Plateau, because it's long, it's big. It's big enough to fit the story in the Timaeus. Um, it is a kind of a continent. If you look at the plateau in its more expansive uh, reach, it would be from roughly Newfoundland all the way down to Florida in, a, in terms of its north south extent. And it would be the width of, it'd probably be a 500 mile width, something equivalent to like the Eastern seaboard of the United States, all the, all the, you know, the Virginia, Tennessee kind of inland. That's how long the main body of it is, right in the center of the Atlantic, kind of slightly biasing east. And then there's a little branch of it, right where the Azores are, which is where the African plate joins the story. And I think my best, hypothesis there and when I'm trying to find, you know, if there's anybody looking at it, it would be that even though no, there was not 2000 meters sea level change for the whole Atlantic, it may be that because the three continental plates meet at that one part, at that one mid-Atlantic spot where the Azores are, that there was a, a non-linear response to the rebalancing of the North American plate. So the North American plate became that much lighter and the Atlantic and Pacific became that much heavier from the extra water. And that even though on average, there was only, let's say up to 500 meters of sea level change, there may have been an, an exceptional uh, response where the plates meet because that's where the land is perhaps more, most pliable. 
And so that could have led to larger uh, uh, um, depth change of, 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 of the, the plateau. Well, and there's also like within the tectonic plates, there is like the sub, there's um, like sometimes they do this, which creates mountains. And sometimes there's the one where the plate goes underneath another one. So Subduction. yeah, yeah, yeah. subterranean yeah. like, um, which there could have been, especially when you have three mixing like that, there's yes. no, you know. So most of the mid-Atlantic ridge is spreading. And that's so it's it's uh, open geothermal, but I don't know uh, the action between the Eurasian and African. They're kind of if you look north south, there's kind of this long ridge, but then on the east side, from your perspective, the Eurasian and African plates. The Eurasian plate is north, African plate is, is south, and both of them hit the North American plate. And I don't I don't know if they're all spreading there, um, but it just seems like. It's at least uh, uh, suggestive that there might be a different response to a rebalancing where the plates meet versus at their centers. You know, which like the North American plate where the ice uh, where the ice pack was in mid Canada, that's the center of the North American plate. And so, who knows how plates work? That's a good question for a geologist. But anyway, um, so if that all that what's what's really amazing though is that the the boundary layer that the geologists are familiar with, the younger driest boundary, the, the black mat, the, um, the kind of unexplained soil. Uh, uh, phenomenon, that is very close to this date for great deluges and catastrophes mentioned in, in the described in the Timaeus and they, they describe it as a derangement of stars. Every, everyone's, you know, different societies uh, face different catastrophes. We, the Egyptians, have a, an unusually stable piece of land being here, you know, in the desert in North Africa, but most other places suffer from, from fires and, 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 uh, and flooding much more than we do. That's why we have a longer cultural memory. That's kind of what the Egyptians are telling so long. Um, but then they say, occasionally there is a, a derangement of stars that leads to truly epic disasters. Um, and that is perhaps the, the passed on memory of a, uh, an asteroid or comet impact that triggered a, a highly anomalous uh, change in Earth's climate uh, or, or catastrophes. Uh, and that's, that's where you start to also get the other line of evidence for the Younger Dryas. Not just does the, the climate change, but there is this black mat of that is significant of okay, here's where the black mat always gets me is okay let's say let's say it's it's a series of comets that come and create like whatever 30 mile waves that take out continents or whatever i don't know i don't care mm -hmm. at, at this point but my or and it creates like giant fires or has i like maybe super volcanoes go off i don't really know but the thing is what really bothers me about and I've talked to uh, some other people about the actual black mat is how thick it is. It's very prevalent within the geological record where you're, the, especially in North America where you're digging. And it's, it's gotta be, it's not just one fire. It, it's thick, oh, it's like a really yeah. thick oily layer. So part of me wonders if, <laughs> I think it's nuclear war. <laughs> I don't know that it's a comet. I don't know that it's natural. It feels like it's 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 more than a hearth fire, or yeah. it's more than a. Well, I don't know. I don't the, think 
100% know how the, this happened. The best analysis I've seen is this guy. Um, I should pull it up just so I get his name right. Um, it's called Prehistory Decoded. Have, I, have we talked about it? Prehistory Decoded on YouTube. Uh, his name is, I will get you in a second. Um, it, it's a YouTube series by a, a guy who basically brings a, a, a good measure of like just scholarship to this question. And he does a literature review on um, let's say the past decade of papers around this that are published in um, you know, Nature and maybe the Quaternary Review. Uh, it's about, I would say 50 papers that he goes through. He puts them all in a spreadsheet and he marks them as you know pro or against the, the hypothesis. And each one he steps through, he goes through the, 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 the texts of the papers he goes through the, the diagrams, he talks about different problems, different modes of analysis. And it's something like, you know, a dozen or so uh, hour long, half hour to hour long episodes in his series where he, he really deconstructs all of the arguments and tells, he has a, 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 a his own perspective. Uh, Martin Sweatman, I just pulled it up, sorry, that was him talking prehistory decoded on YouTube. Um, and he has his own perspective on it. He's, he's strongly in support of the, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, which is that a comet caused this. Um, and like does a meticulous literature review. So I, I would suggest if you have an inordinate amount of free time on your hand, just go see what other people have studied about this. Um, it's not a small debate. It's of the caliber of debate. It, it looks to me like there was around the um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the asteroid debate around what, what killed the dinosaurs, the KT uh, impact hypothesis, which I, growing up in the 80s, I remember kind of dimly being interested in science at that point, or, or starting to be interested in science. I remember seeing that like on the supermarket magazine shelves, like Discover Magazine or Scientific American, there was always like covers like is it true? Did a you know? Did it? And it took a decade to work out. Right. Well, and then there is there is like um, you know like uh, the dinosaur theory one too. Is that the the comet was so big that it covered the you know the sun for multiple multiple years enough to where all the vegetation died out and um, but you know there was yeah. nothing left for them all to eat and like they had a slow little crawl to death where they like died and I mean. You you mean like the nuclear winner of it? The like the nuclear, yeah, the after effect of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. after everything had settled. And there, I like, I think that we could have been dealing with that in the Young Adrias as well, especially considering the, the black layer. Um, yes. Yeah, that was, that's what it would, so the scenario is that, you know, roughly there's natural cycles of um, glaciations on earth that, that last, I don't know, I'll get it out, out of my pay grade here, but you know, tens of thousands of years. And those are based off the, the orbital oscillations of the earth and, and, and ephemeris there. Um, and we were on our way out of a glaciation into a warm period, fine, which happens. Um, but that there was an impact of a large uh, asteroid or um, comet and that that caused immediately continent-wide wildfires 
because of uh, uh, just the thermal energy of the explosion and raining down. You know, there might be these impact craters, which we should talk about, which are the main uh, impact sites. But uh, if it was a fragmented comet or something, it could well have been a you know fire and brimstone kind of thing raining right. down and, and, and setting everything on fire. And so the idea there is that there was a brief period of conflagration uh, followed by the smoke and ejecta going up into the atmosphere um, and dimming the sky, which leads to cold. Uh, and that, that leads to a, a sharp uh, freezing. Um, and then, a re then we go get back to the main scheduled program of the warming from the last ice age. So to, to, to make the um, deluge story work, there needs to be, in, in my best understanding, there needs to be enough kind of energy released from the impact that there's a titanic catastrophic flooding from the North, the North uh, American uh, um, uh, glaciers into the Atlantic. And that it, it's kind of like, uh, not necessarily like a tidal wave, although there, there may have been tidal waves just from the impact. Well, for, from my point of view, like you would have had to have had, um, I'm very, very interested in the actual megalithic stones themselves, um, but you would have had to have had, uh, okay, well, like, let's take, let's take, let's say Fukushima, what is it, the, the tsunami that did Fukushima, right? I mean, let's, let's put that same scenario in uh, New York City, like, I don't know how much of New York City would survive. So I feel like if you had all these cultures all over, they would have had to have had some giant tsunami in order to, even we wouldn't survive big enough tsunamis. They yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the kind of tsunamis that you're talking about with, with these impacts, um, yeah, they could, be, they could be really large. But I think to get the long-term effects, I mean, certainly to, to account for something like Atlantis sinking, you need even greater events. You need a massive melt uh, and um, an isostatic rebalancing um, to, to cover that land with, with water. Um, but so that all is roughly the story, I think, that is emerging in the Younger Dryas impact debate. Um, there, you know, over a decade of scholarship and argument has revealed some serious anomalies from that period of time that are best accounted for by uh, some sort of an asteroid impact. Uh, there's a platinum, uh, scattering of platinum across the face of the earth. Um, there's the, the continent-wide wildfires. There's the massive uh, megafauna die-off of the, the Americas. That had already been explained by some as an overkill, what's called the overkill hypothesis that the um, um, the Clovis people had, the, the Native Americans of ancient Native Americans had, had killed all the, the megafauna. Uh, but there's a, you start kind of looking through this different lens and you're like, well, this, maybe that was a little overstated and, and this is all better explained by this event that does appear to have happened there. The platinum boundary in particular is one of the hardest things to explain away. Why is so there- where, where is the impacts like that they're claiming like? So that was all the, the smoke. And then they found you know, the smoking gun, or the gun, um, potentially, which is these two large craters in, in North Greenland, Northwest Greenland. There's a, um, 
the, the kind of Arctic, uh, the, 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 the scientists who have been studying Greenland for taking ice core samples there for global warming for, for decades have noticed for a while that there's this one area that they fly over, which appears to be a huge ring of, of ice. And so they finally did ground penetrating radar uh, of it and found that it's, it appears to be a, a huge uh, uh, crater. Um, they published a paper, I think in 17 or eight, 2017 or 2018, which estimated all the parameters of it, the shape, the depth, how big of an impact it must've been and how recent it must've been because of the, um, uh, if it was old, then the continual wearing of the ice on Greenland would have worn it down, uh, like glaciers did in the, in the Midwest and in Appalachia. Um, and they said, basically, it's got too prominent of a ridge to have been old. It must be new. They end up putting bounds on it, which fit at the young end, they say, are uh, compatible with the younger Dryas impact hypothesis. Um, but certainly no means limited to that. It could be as old as 100,000 years, according to their estimate, uh, but it could be as young as 10,000 years. If it does, since it does overlap with the Younger Dryas uh, impact hypothesis, it would potentially explain the platinum. Uh, then a year later, they found another almost the same size uh, crater just uh, 20 or 30 miles east of it. The current word is that there's no reason to suspect that they're related, but that, I don't know, that doesn't really seem to pass. No, but then the other thing that makes me wonder, it's like, also, have you looked into Zealandia? That's another, it's the same, it's another sinking of a big continent that was uh, surrounding, uh, or basically connected Indonesia to New Zealand. Yes, and, I think you've told me about that, yeah. Yeah, but there's, um, that would have, they that aligns with the, uh, that apparently aligns with Young Adrias as well. Mm, and for me, I mean, I guess you could uh, account for that with subterranean, like continental, like, like situations going on. But if, I mean, that's literally the polar opposite end of the planet from yeah. Greenland. So that's true. Although this is total speculation on my part, but I know that from Mars, um, some of the Mars topography is showing that the prominences on one side of the planet are met by depressions on the antipode of the other side of the planet. So you'll get like Olympus Mons. Sense, yeah. on, you know, the, the tallest mountain in the solar system is Olympus Mons. It's five times taller than Mount Everest. It sticks up into space pretty far. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the planet is Hellas Planitia, I think. Uh, I'm probably getting this wrong, but a, a huge so depression. Yeah. And so there's a sense that the, the, again, this rebalancing, something happens on one side and it kind of like reverberates around and has kind of the opposite effect on the other. So they could be linked, who knows? Yeah. But, but yeah, so there's this line of evidence and just to give you a sense of scale, um, the craters in North Greenland are like 30 kilometers in diameter, I believe. Um, if they are uh, dated to when we think that they are the past 100,000 years, that would make each one uh, in the list of the top 25, 20 something largest craters on earth that are known. And if you go further and say, well, sort that by time, you know, okay, maybe there's some huge craters in the way distant past, but how long has it been since we've seen anything like a 30 kilometer impact crater on earth? You have to go back uh, past 10 million years I think that there's one right at the boundary of about 10 million years in Tajikistan, but um, really the last time that you see anything like this is uh, 
maybe the Chesapeake crater, there's a couple of larger ones, but it's, it's the dinosaurs. So um, that was 150 kilometer diameters. That's much larger. But if you have two craters, which the one in the Yucatan. Getting, yeah, 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 in the Yucatan. Um, if you have two craters, which each are 30 kilometers, I don't think you can simply add them up, but you can kind of add them up at 60 kilometers, and that's half of the size of, um, of the one in the, the Yucatan that killed the dinosaurs. If that kind of an event happened, uh, just you know, 1100, uh, 11,500 years ago, that's a that's a um, it changes everything. Like yeah. it, it's just the it is it's impossible it, for me. Just getting a sense of it, it's like impossible to imagine that not being the most important event in human history. You know, well, I I think it is, which is why I'm semi obsessed with it and similarly yeah. obsessed with all the uh, megaliths and. Uh, also with dating in general, like um, trying to, uh, you know, it's very hard to date stone in general, like when it was, so when like a mega- I don't have very good relationships myself with stone. I, I find uh, they don't really reciprocate in the way I like. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. That was, yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, just like uh, when a stone was made geologically versus like when it was constructed via man, you know, that is very hard to, you know kind of come to a, a set date on. So a lot of these dates that we have had of, of- I saw you talking about this in your, um, maybe in your last uh, episode where your, 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 your friend was talking, maybe you were talking about the surface dating from like exposure. I haven't looked into that a lot. I know that there's like radiocarbon oh, dating. Jindeo, yeah. Yeah. But, well, and what's your take on that? What's the- is it well uh i mean my take i'm 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 way woo okay so like i'm not whatever but so i'm i'm probably <laughs> a t-shirt that says that <laughs> i'm way woo yeah like you're you're definitely not going to be in line with what i'm what i think on this but what i think on this is i'm actually like i was thinking the other day something that i want to study is the lichen and the the moss that are on a bunch of these old like carns and like for instance stonehenge stonehenge has 99 or something um kinds of lechen and little tiny moss and stuff that are growing on the stones and also it's this it's called bluestone which is warm to the touch which is really weird but anyway these moss grow on that those stones and nowhere no other kind of stone and you find that same, I notice like when I'm on my, whether I'm in Tikal or Egypt or Peru or wherever I am, all like these weird out of place boulders in my mind that are in just in the middle of the forest when you're walking, they have a lot of uh, these weird lechen. And I also noticed that, okay, some of the megalithic stuff is made out of granite, which is got at least 13% quartz crystal in it. And I'm wondering if, uh, if there's some energy stuff going on well not well for yeah that's maybe why these particular moss and stuff are interested in it yeah. but i'm also wondering if there's created quarries or created areas or or this was the ancient technology that they had that we don't have like they had a way to make stone whether that was some ah. sort of yeah, i don't know but like i think it's it's also kind of here's what i find weird i find weird that the percentage of like feldspar versus quartz versus like sand, like set of sedimentary versus igneous rock that is within a granite conglomeration. Mm -hmm. It looks very um, 
evenly mixed in a churner. You know, it's 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 bizarre how how or because you would think Earth would be like, ah, here's a giant piece of feldspar here, and then there's a little piece of this. It wouldn't be so evenly spread huh. if it were mixing in the crucibles of the Earth during a mag magma, you know, churning of being formed. So part of me is even starting to look at granite different. I'm starting to look at granite as a ancient technology. Hmm. All right, well. Like an ancient concrete. That is pretty woo, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So like. I don't know, I mean, I think, I think of the, the mantle and the magma as, uh, as being extremely uh, circulating and, and, and maybe there would be a reasonable opportunity for homogenous material to come out of that you know you've got yeah but uh, that's the thing it's not its own thing it doesn't just melt it down to where it's it's like just one kind of solution it it basically gives you a cookie dough mix that's perfectly cookie dough mix everywhere which is weird all right you're right the cookie dough mix uh, hypothesis yeah no um Rock is rock is crazy. I will agree with you on that. Um, I like the idea on the the lichen. Um, I wonder if, if if you could do analysis on the surface of rocks uh, by their chemical composition. Due right. To so my argument would be that if this lichen or moss is growing on, and I would have to like see exactly. I know one place to start would be the carns, or. Mm -hmm. I've heard that word. I don't know what it means. It's, it's C A I R N S. Yeah, Carnes. It's um, it's basically megalithic um stones that are found all over, like um, you know, Europe. Um, but like Stonehenge would technically be a Carn. There's like Carns in Carn, France. There's Carns that are, okay. are that's what you would call a stone circle that isn't necessarily Stonehenge. Like that's their their um, maybe technical name over there. So that would be a good place to start would be to test the lichen and the moss variety on carns in general, mm -hmm. and then see if there's something different about that worldwide. Cause like, even when I'm in like in the Amazon jungle in Colombia, there's, there's, there's moss on certain stones, but not all, like it's not, it doesn't yeah, yeah. grow on specific types of sandstone. It doesn't grow on all yeah. cliff faces. It doesn't, it, but there are these weird, strange boulders all over the world that have it is little interesting lichen and stuff. And I'm, yeah. and I think that that might be um, remnants of something that was a constructed material. Huh. Yeah. Or I don't know. That's just, that's just like Nikki way woo. Like where I, where my mind, I've never heard that from anybody else. That's just where I've gone with it. Well, you know, but, but maybe there's, we could meet in between of saying that once rock is quarried, it, it begins weathering due to exposure from lichen uh, at a different rate, you know? And so I don't think you, to, some of the strength of that might, might not depend on whether the rock is, is synthetic or not. It might just simply be, was it exposed or not? Like, yeah. Let's say it's quarried out of the ground. Before you quarry it, it's, it's been trapped, you know, unexposed to air or, or biology, you know, for millions of years potentially. Well, and a big part of, um, something that's different about the way, okay, so the reason why megaliths are so crazy amazing is that many of them are, are hundreds of tons, and you have, like, whether you're talking about ball back Lebanon, or, I mean, there's, there's megaliths, even in the town I'm from, there's a megalithic stone in Las Lunas, Albuquerque, or, like, mm -hmm. south of Albuquerque in New Mexico, 
there's there's megaliths there's giant balls in costa rica there's there's stuff all over the planet like i could give yes. you like whatever but the thing is is okay even if, if even if something is 70 tons i don't care how muscular of a man you are how many of you are gonna i don't how many care how many ropes and pulleys and all that stuff you have it's not going to be an easy thing to do. And for how prevalent oh, it is across the entire planet, whatever they did wasn't that hard for them. Like we don't create stones that big today because even with our current modern day cranes, we wouldn't even have the oh. ability to move the Baalbek um, um, stones. Or like there's a, a giant stuff underneath Israel or what do you call it? Jerusalem in, uh, in Israel. The um, yeah. Yeah, so so for me, these are super super fascinating because I think they are the biggest it um, thing in front of our face. Of this is the pre-Diluvian, um, yes, yeah, yeah, civilizations. Yeah. yeah, so I I was gonna try to make that comment about the old idea that the Stone Age was basically people living in. Um, in caves and kind of Flintstones. I think that that's giving way to a, you know, essentially they were not mo modern is wrong, but they were incredibly adept at building a world of stone. Um, the number of, I was reading the- Well, look, they could have had more than just stone. They could have had other technologies with metals and all this kind of stuff. But look at like the Antikytherian machine that you showed me. That's supposedly supposed to be what? 5,000 years old? No, 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 500 BC. So, oh, okay. so, yeah. so you're looking at like less than three. Well, that was yeah. But so that's that's kind of peak antiquity. That is exceptionally awesome, but it's not too hard to understand that the Greeks and Romans who had somewhat, you know, uh, I mean. But what I, what I'm more talking about is like look at the metal, how much it's corroded. Look at like we're talking about two thousand. Yes. I mean, so um, if you're if you want to talk about something pre-Diluvian, you want to talk about something twelve thousand years ago or right. before how much metal would still be in existence now? That's, well, but wouldn't you see it in burial tombs? For instance, in the in, in Pharaonic Egypt, in the, in the beginning of the pyramid builders, I feel like we would see uh, steel or alloys. If, if they were capable of making alloys, surely they but would. Maybe they had something, they didn't need that. Maybe they had something else that we don't have. I mean, just like, uh, I'm saying there's, there, they might have tapped into another form of electricity that we don't even, you know, know is in in our field of that's of possibility and that's completely lost to us hey who knows i i'm, I'm not against it um the i would like to see evidence of it but i guess to me i am satisfied with being blown away by level of capability that they had simply with working with stone even if you don't assume that they used anything besides um, uh, you know, rope and timber to, to, to work with it. The, I'm reading the, the wood book on megaliths and they have, you know, kind of expository at the beginning about there are thousands and thousands of these sites around Europe um, just, just to go to Europe. And, you know, Stonehenge is a, an iconic one, but it's not nearly the largest. I think there's one in Abbeybury or something. Yeah, yeah, that's like uh, well, it's bigger than a town. It encompasses the town. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it's it's like a cathedral compared to a church parish uh, when you compare it to uh, to Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. uh, just completely dominates the landscape for the whole area. Um, and then of course Gobekli Tepe, right, which is uh, whatever nine thousand BC or eight thousand BC. 
uh, it's 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 well i mean it's between nine thousand and eleven thousand years old okay yeah yeah um it's pretty amazing i think something for, and then malta malta's is uh, nine thousand years old oh wow i visited malta on my last i know and i can't believe you didn't go to the i didn't know i'm such a dummy you know i you know i think most of my learning about this stuff is really picked up during covid so there's a lot of a, a COVID yeah. project but um well i mean you know it's it's interesting because i got obsessed with this on a yoga journey going to peru we we're going around to all the the um you know all the the ruins and i was i remember i was at ole Bitomble, and that's where there's there's those huge uh megaliths and they have little little nubbins on the bottom of them which are so that's a feature found all over the world those weird nubbins and our guide was telling us about how oh these stones weigh however many hundred thousands of pounds and he's like and these people always think that aliens built them or whatever he's like but they didn't build them like people just lift them up with these these nubbins and i i was like what and i go up to the stone and i'm looking that there's a hairline like I looked at this thing myself and was like, I'm not saying aliens built them, but I'm saying we, as in us today, didn't build this and neither did like, mm -hmm. like the Incas or like something is going on here with this. And then that that's what, so I, I, I just got firsthand experience looking at one up close and was going like, oh, okay, this completely throws my paradigm of what's going on in this planet off. Mm -hmm. So yeah and then i started like geeking out about it and getting back into it and that was only like five years ago and that was accidentally yeah um i i share a similar sense of of awe on all like i said the 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 ability of that we should we share this the ability of stonework um and then also to reference on go back Lutep, the advancement of astronomy and mm -hmm. Uh, um, just as the celestial understanding where it, it appears that there is uh, tracking of subtle um, astronomical events that I think most living humans don't understand uh, exist or, or, or happen. Not that our astronomers don't, our astronomers do, but like, um, you know. Yeah, but it's weird because, you know, even like Chaco Canyon, so even you're talking about um, Native Americans, like they have you know sundials and and ways in which they are tracking the stars and somehow we think we're so advanced and so much smarter than every civilization to come from us but most people have never even looked at the night sky or ever seen the yes world. i think it has a lot to do with uh just the way we live and not being exposed so much to the to the raw experience of the night sky but also the traditions that um, would be cultivated around enjoying the night sky Okay, so do you think this is like the Kali Yuga, where it's like every, you know, like the Bhagavad Gita, where they talk about how every, there's a cycle where this stuff comes back around and pummels us and put, I mean, like there's a lot of uh, legends around the world, in South America and stuff that say we're the fifth age of man, where this is the fifth, you know, time. Yeah, so, right. Um, yes, no, like, one thing that is shocking is if the, if Gobekli Tep does encode um, uh, a procession, essentially, like the long calendar procession, uh, then that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, and I think 
do I believe that that actually has a causal potency in the world? Uh, um, maybe. I mean, it might be the kind of thing like I always um, astrology to me is is kind of a it's an it's a half science. It's kind of a descriptive framework where it might be taking some agreed on facts that you know astronomers and astrologers basically agree on certain things and then wildly disagree on others. Um, but I think to early science, we shouldn't hold early sciences or things like astrology, I would call it early science or alchemy, early sciences, we shouldn't hold them to quite the same uh, test as, as what we call for with science today. They were more synthetic of topics which we have since distinguished. We have since said um, that uh, you know the, the cycles of the earth that are sensitive to the turning of the seasons and the turning of the years, uh, we can just describe in, in different kind of mechanisms. And so it's not so important that we kind of wrap it all up into a single uh, descriptive framework. You know, the stars are causing me to be a certain personality. That doesn't make any sense to the modern yeah, either. But it, it makes a lot of sense to an old ear. And they were trying to do similar, per they had a, an important purpose was to create some worldview. They needed a worldview that kind of made consistent. Uh, no, but I mean more like, uh, I mean, should we should we be building cities underground? Like, to, I mean, like, should we be prepared for more deluges? Should, is that right. just a cycle that comes around? Because well, so that that goes particularly to this question of what actually happened and the younger Dryas. If it was an impact, then that's that. Then you know, we have to determine what was that from. Was it a, a freak occurrence or not? The I think that there's a reasonable hypothesis in the what, what Martin Sweatman gets into is that there's a torrid meteor stream. Um, some in the past hundred thousand years, maybe there was some uh, comet that broke up that was in a long cycle coming into the solar system, and it broke up, and it created a, uh, a, a, a the torrid meteor stream, which is one of the um, the biannual uh, meteor showers that we see at night. And it comes out of Taurus, uh, which I'm going to get this all wrong, but like it would have been essentially a nameable event to the ancients. Like if they had a developed astrology or astronomy, they were able to name parts of the sky and say uh, name times when those parts of the sky would be overhead, right? So that's, that's the presumed function of a lot of these megalithic structures is as so as celestial clocks um you know if, if you like i think stonehenge has a sight hole through one of the rocks that aligns with the horizon particularly of some solstice event like you know the summer solstice every year comes up right through the hole or something like that um and that the whole of the whole of uh, of stonehenge is essentially a set of viewing points which encode different important events about how things cross the horizon at different times of year, depending on the, the orbit of the earth and the uh, precession of the earth. So if that's true, the, and it, it, then it essentially acts as a clock and then different inscriptions on it, for instance, a Gobekli Tet may act as a sort of uh, cosmic calendar of noting important events. And that's the hypothesis in Prehistory Decoded on Martin Sweatman's channel, is that the, the vulture stone at Gobekli Tep encodes the, or, the configuration of the sky during the Younger Dryas impact. 
that it was basically a uh, an understood um, it, it was a it was a calendared event that the people who built Gobekli Tepe knew exactly what they were talking about when they built that site, and it was meant to encode a memory of this date is important because there is a certain dis uh, derangement of the sky to quote the Egyptians uh, that happens in, in a predictable way, and never forget it. We're going to build this, build this huge site and make sure that it's preserved through the ages so that you never forget that there is a dangerous time of year uh, associated with these, this, this meteor shower that happens that comes out of Taurus. Um, what if it's like, what if it wasn't a meteor? What if it was the flipping of the poles? What if Younger Dryas is when the, the poles flip? For that, I think you need some sort of a, a mechanism. Why would that cause global wildfires? Why would that cause uh, melting, isostatic rebalancing? Maybe it like awakens super volcanoes. Maybe it- Or um, the Kraken, you know, who knows? Kraken, yeah. <laughs> well, there's another- I mean, there is, there is geological evidence that we have had multiple pole, poles. Um, I mean, there's the Milankovitch cycle in- yes. South. I mean, we do know that the poles shift. Um, I don't know if they've... Well, the Milankovitch cycle is a... That's a orbital ephemeris, I believe. That, no, uh, that's where they take the... Um, they take core samplings in the Pacific Ocean, like of the magma around, like, you know, the Hawaiian Islands, where they can show uh, that uh, when, when it when, once the molten lava um, hardened, it was uh, the iron filings point north or they point south. And yes. And they and uh, so they they're wherever they are wherever they point it's very hardcore set in stone, and they can show that it, it goes like a pumpkin to, or like a castle top graph you know where it's like doo, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. versus yeah. like so so what that means is that when it flips it flips fast it's or That's... and geologically fast could be a hundred years could be a thousand years I don't know but it doesn't it doesn't take millions of years to to flip it yeah. apparently it when it flips it goes. Uh, South so I agree that that phenomenon exists and it is recorded as you say. I thought that the Milankovitch cycles were related to either the sun cycles or the orbital cycle of the earth and that you can you can measure them in a, perhaps by the interaction with the earth's magnetic field but I don't think that the those I don't know. Are you sure? Yeah. I I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Well, put, put a pin in that. We got to look into that. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm just thinking like, like, you yeah, know. you were asking if, if we should build caves and uh, I think that there was, I heard somewhere there's a, a nice BBC show from the eighties that was like recorded on VHS. It's floating around YouTube somewhere. And I think it's the, like the last living Druid in the British Isles, they interview this guy and he claims to be the last living Druid. And he said, look, um, the reason the Druids exist is to, to, to keep this wisdom tradition alive. And we used to, they, we Druids used to build caves in, in the British Isles and they're all about uh, uh, escaping these uh, celestial impacts. So apparently the Druids, uh, at least that guy has an Well, I mean, there's really evidence cool. of cave systems and cities all over the, the world. Yes. I'm yeah. I'm kind of a big cave person too. I like love me some caves. Um, but I I, you know. I think my takeaway from it is this is a grand narrative that I don't think is necessarily true, but I would love it to be true, which is 
that the impact of the Younger Dryas woke us from our million year slumber and that somehow or another, it led us to uh, becoming spacefaring. That it was a signal from, you know, our environment that we were not in a, a stable place and that terrible things could happen on earth. And I, I don't even think it's just humans. I think we as kind of a representative of the living creatures of earth maybe woke up and said, oh, we live in a dynamic cosmos and we need- well, it Took us 10,000 or 12,000 years to wake up. That's kind of a- Well, if you sleep for millions of years, then it takes 10,000 years to wake up, right? But so I think that there's a sense in which truly old human thinking is kind of timeless. It was like content to live in. And I think that's the story of, the, of Eden that we lived in a contentment on earth and then something woke us from our slumbers, you know, some sort of terrible event. Um, you know, it's typified as knowledge in, in the biblical story, but perhaps that knowledge was some realization of our place in the cosmos and the cosmos not being a restful benign place, but something that needed to be grappled with. And, uh, you know, if, 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 if the essential lesson was like stuff that happens up here has effects down here, uh, up there has effects down here, then maybe intuitively we knew that we had to explore up there to, to really get a sense for, for our place and what dangers and what our agency ought to be as humans. I, that's my, that's the way I knit it all For together. insurance on the human yeah. And, and, and not just humans, but for the whole planet, you know, like if, if it's true that the younger Dryas is more impact was more to blame for the megafauna extinctions of the North American uh, uh, megafauna, if, if that is the main cause and the overkill is kind of a, 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 a smaller part of it, then we're talking really uh, a, a different story, which is it's, it's more similar to the dinosaur story which is that rocks from space are the main cause of, of climate change, of, of, of global devastation. Like I did some calculations, you know, you were, you were talking about um, nuclear war. I did some, I'll quote you, I brought them up for this. Um, nuclear war is a tiny, tiny phenomenon compared to these events. So, you know, kind of cobbling together some estimates from- Yeah, from but we haven't had real nuclear war we've had one atomic bomb like we haven't used u-bombs on each other we haven't really gone to town on it that's true but we do know how many we have and we do know how powerful they are so you can you can sum up the arsenal in terms of its yield the the ton, tons of tnt equivalent and get a number and that's expressible in terms of joules of energy. And you can compare that to estimates of joules of energy from other events. And so I've done that and uh, roughly estimate that the world nuclear weapons, the US nuclear weapons stockpile is roughly equivalent to one to two gigatons of TNT. So to give you a comparison, Hiroshima was uh, a few kilotons, I think maybe 10 to, 15, 10 to 20 kilotons of TNT. So a ton of TNT is like a, a truck. Imagine filling up a truck with, with dynamite, right? The, uh, just a pickup truck. Fill up the back with dynamite, set that off. That's one kiloton, right? Okay. 
uh, sorry, that's one ton of TNT. Multiply that by a thousand, that's a kiloton. Multiply that by 10 or 20, that's Hiroshima or Nagasaki. So those, those were the first atomic bombs that we used in war were 10 to 20 kiloton. And this is just off the top of my head, I could look it up, but it's, it's roughly that. The largest bomb, those were the uh, nuclear bombs from uranium, uh, plutonium. Those were used later, 10, 20 years later to create uh, um, hydrogen bombs, fusion bombs, which they light, those atomic bombs are what are used to light the fusion bomb. Fusion bombs are measured in megatons instead of kilotons, which is a thousand times. So kilo, one kiloton is rough, well, 10 kilotons is roughly Hiroshima. Multiply that by a thousand and you get the uh, thermonuclear weapons of the 60s when they were doing the tests in the Pacific and blowing up, you know, huge, huge. Uh, why, uh, why even, why even go there? Like it, it would be, you know, I think mainly it's the, it's the story of Prometheus. It's, it's the ancient problem of knowledge. Like once you know that you can do it, you, you want to try doing it. And we we're like, I, we think we can just do these incredibly large explosions. The largest explosion was 50, five zero megatons, um, the Bar Tsar Bomba by the, the Russians somewhere in Siberia. It was like one of those islands that stick off the top of, of uh, Siberia. Um, and that's as big as it got. Once it's hard to make bigger atomic bombs like new, uh, uh, uranium and plutonium. You actually need to dig more uranium and plutonium. But once you use that to ignite hydrogen, hydrogen is plentiful. So that those bombs, maybe it's you know HE3 or something like that. Those bombs are relatively easy to scale up. So we could have kept on going with those. We didn't. We just made lots of more practical size bombs. And so most of the bombs that are in our, our uh, arsenals, the United States and the, uh, the Russians had the largest arsenals, and to some degree, the European states and China, but orders of magnitude smaller. Most of the, the, the size of the arsenals is somewhere around thousand, low thousands of nuclear warheads, each nuclear warhead being somewhere on the megaton, you know, half megaton to, to five megaton range. Those, that's well known. That's tracked by the Union of uh, Concerned Scientists. Um, they run that, the, 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 the clock, the, the doomsday clock, how many seconds in the night are we? So they keep track of how much nuclear weapons, how many nuclear weapons are in general. And we talk about how bad it would be if we went to a nuclear war and used them all, right? The total amount of energy would be somewhere on the order. If you convert megatons or TNT equivalent to joules, which is the usual standard uh, energy unit, two gigatons of TNT is about 10 the 18th joules. So I'm just going to put that there. Wait, say that, that again because you cut out right there. Joules. The total... Two, two gigatons of TNT, which is about the United States nuclear we weapon stockpile, is equivalent to about 10 to the 18th joules. Okay, so 10, uh, 10 uh, one followed with 18 zeros joules. Um, so just keep that number in mind. If every, if you go up to the largest earthquakes, that's 10 to the 19th joules. If you go up to the largest volcanic eruptions that we've seen in modern times, Mount Pintabo and Mount Tambora, that gets up to 10 to the 20, 10 to the 20th joules, so we're 100 times. The Mount Tambora eruption of 1815 
was 100, uh, 10 to 100 times larger than all of our nuclear weapons put together. Right. That was 18, that's one volcano. Now here, that was recent times, that was 1800s. Here's where we get into truly Titanic numbers. Human energy production is about the same level. The Hiawatha impact crater, the one impact crater in Northwest Greenland was something like uh, uh, 10 times more powerful than that. Now a thousand times more powerful than all of our nuclear weapons together is that one 35 kilometer uh, crater in North Greenland. Two of those would be two times as much energy. A hurricane is about the same energy as that. Most of the energy in a hurricane, it turns out, is not the released by the storm. It's it's released by the um, surge. Um, the uh, no, the evaporation of water. The amount of energy that it oh, takes the, okay. to evaporate all the water to get it into that cell is like ninety nine percent of the energy that it takes to make a hurricane. And then global warming is ten times more than that. And then you get to very very large events like Mount Toba. Um, super volcano, which was about 74,000 years ago, was about 10 to the 22nd joules, so 22 zeros, one followed by 22 zeros joules, which is 10,000 times more than the entire nuclear weapons arsenal of the Earth. That was roughly the size of the super volcano that almost wiped humans off the face of the Earth 80, 74,000 years ago. So, you know, we're talking events happening with i think you know before really recently the past 50 years or so then the the thought that truly titanic events happened on earth in any time recent would have been kind of laughable the the idea that it caused the extinction of the dinosaurs was fought over for 10 years so we're getting to a point now where we're saying something like that something that far exceeds our capacity even if we put our minds to it far exceeds our capacity to have as a an event like a nuclear war those happen in, 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 in natural timescales that are somewhat recent. It does kind of put global warming into perspective. It is scary that the amount of energy that, for instance, Hansen was talking about when he first estimated the energy input from global warming is at the level of something like a asteroid impact or a super volcano. Um, but on the upside, it also means that Earth is well equipped to recover from those. We didn't even know that these events happened in any way until we really got advanced with our science and used ground penetrating radar in North Greenland. Like if, if this event truly happened, then it was something that kind of um, is on par with global warming, but it was completely uh, missing from the, 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 the uh, stratigraphic record until we spent a lot of time analyzing it. So that's, it's kind of a, a scary story, but also a testament to the resilience of the earth to, to recover from these things. And in regards to like global warming, I've never really been that big. I mean, first of all, I, I mean, like, I think there's many reasons why we should be more responsible for sure. But yeah, I mean, like one, I, I mean, I've heard statistics about like certain volca volcanic eruptions are, it would take two years of all the cars in the world to equal that energy, mm -hmm. but not, it's not just so much that, but it's like, well, we don't live on a stable planet in general. We've had many ice ages and like kind of a melting of glacier periods geologically throughout. Mm -hmm. We don't live on a, we, we take for right. granted this whole season, this four seasons every year thing. We're worried um, about one to two to three degrees of, of Celsius, you know, temperature change, but the younger Dryas was about 20 degrees Celsius yeah. temperature change. 
and you know <laughs> like yeah it just really puts things into perspective it really does now i think the the critical uh, take on that is that those are all cooling and we're talking about warming and maybe something different happens on the warming end of well but i mean like um, i like if you look at uh the dinosaurs were obviously living in a period of time where tropical plants that could grow super super huge yeah. were like very very far north um we're talking about a time when like texas was all underneath water like mm -hmm. we have had water and i would say that these are our our stream heated heated times i mean we, there's times where the uh they think antarctica was all land like it wasn't um yeah totally well you know in general there's i think there's uh two terms which often get conflated there's ice age versus uh glacial periods mm -hmm. um you know we're in an ice age uh, in the long sense the, the technical sense and i believe in geology and earth science is you're in an ice age when there is ice somewhere on earth Right. So we've been Constantly. in an ice age for 50 million years or whatever since the, um, was it the Ordova scene or something? So like there is the other period of earth where there is ice nowhere, you know, right. not on Antarctica. Water world versus the ice, yeah. Right. So we're, what we talk about when we talk about ice ages, typically we're misusing the term. What we should be saying is glaciation, which is where the glaciers advance and retreat in the, lat in the high latitudes on both sides of the planets. That's just that's gets down to the Milankovitch cycles and the the orbital shifts around the planet. Um, yeah, those are their own topic. They are, and we won't figure out the entire history of the world. We just won't. Yes. We could. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking at it. I'm gonna continue looking at it. I got some years. I got some stuff to do. But uh, okay, the other subject you wanted to get into, which I don't know if you still have time to get into that, but. Um, the cycles and the long and, and short-term uh, economic yes. cycles. Um, the, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because we were talking about extremely long cycles, astronomically long cycles uh, of the, the zodiacal calendars. Um, the precession of the earth is something like 22,500 years, right? Um, and that's where we come up with one term of age. Uh, we say, you know, the age of Aquarius I believe follows the age of Capricorn before Aquarius and Pisces comes after Aquarius. And the idea there, the way that works is um, the, uh, the, the stars are a fixed background behind us. Even though we're orbiting the sun, the stars, you know, basically even though they're moving, you can't really see it from Earth except over thousands of years. Um, since the ancients, we have realized that the, uh, that the stars are a fixed background. We've given names to the areas of the sky. That, doesn't, right? why, that never makes sense to me that they're fixed because, I mean, like they are fixed or whatever, but I mean, just in terms of, isn't our sun moving around within the galaxy? Like, don't, I mean, I think that there, there's theories on that. It's almost like a flock of birds where like, like suns go into the center and then they go out to a leg and then they go into, they're, they're not fixed within a spot within their galaxy. So no, that's true. We, we orbit, um, we orbit the, the, the Milky Way, uh, but we do it at such a slow pace relative to human lifespans mm -hmm. that we don't notice it. Um, the recent, uh, star cataloging missions. I think the most recent is the Gaia satellite 
has a um, database that was released to the scientific community a couple of years ago of the most, the nearest few billion stars, two or three billion stars. That's just our corner of the galaxy. There's something like half a trillion stars in our galaxy. And we're in an arm, the Orion arm of the galaxy. And all the stars you see at night are just our part of the galaxy. Just our, like if you imagine our galaxy as this big, let's say it's 100,000 light years in diameter, we can only see uh, and track the stars really well for just like 10% of it, five to 10% of it. And that's what the Gaia mission just came back with. And what it shows yeah. maybe, maybe. Just, we don't know we, I, I i always think it's like such an arbitrary thing to even put a number of what percentage we could see it on if you can only see what you can see like how do you even know how much percentage of the, what you can see that's actually out there that isn't out there like we don't really know well we know we know where the center of the galaxy is um because there's a supermassive black hole there um and well i think we know mainly by analogy to other galaxies I think every galaxy we see has some sort of a symmetrical distribution um, around a center, whether it be pinwheel-shaped galaxy or bar spiral galaxy. And then there are supermassive black holes at the center of them. This is, gets into the discussion of dark matter and, and how do we account for the, where the mass of galaxies is. Right. But in our galaxy, um, we appear to exist in a galaxy that has, you know, if you're in the southern hemisphere of the earth and you look out at night you see many more stars than you do in the northern hemisphere that is concurrent with the idea that we're somewhere in between the center of the galaxy and the edge of the galaxy um, and it's, it's so much so that i believe the aborigines of, of, of australia would name their constellations after the shadows in the stars because there are so many stars they actually named the dark parts of the sky instead of the, oh. the light parts cool. um, but on human time scales the stars don't move very noticeably the right. planets are the word planet comes from greek for traveling star so it was noticeable that some of the stars are moving and they gave a special name to that which is planet but so the, the, the planets are moving with respect to the background frame of the stars. And those stars, we name parts of the sky after animals or whatever we happen to see. It's like, what do you see in a cloud? Um, and we've divided the sky up into 13 regions. I don't know why 13 instead of 12, um, but that's the zodiacal calendar. And the idea is that whatever is above, uh, if you pick a time of year, like. December 31st or something. And you say, wait till midnight on December 31st, wherever you're standing at, you know, Stonehenge or, or, or Texas, wherever you are. And, and you look up, what do you see? Do you see Orion? Do you see you know, Cassiopeia? What do you see? And what's been noted since apparently Go Beckley's happened before is that it changes slowly over time what you see. So with any given year to year, you're basically gonna see the same thing it's gonna be slightly shifted, slightly shifted. And if you keep an accurate calendar, which apparently even the Babylonians um, have, we have written records from the Babylonians that demonstrate this, this gets into the Antikytherian device. Um, the, the, that's called the precession of the heavens. Mm -hmm. And that precession is calculated to be about 22,000, 22 and a half thousand years. That it takes that long to come back around to that star 22,000 years ago that was directly overhead December 31st. Um, once you realize that, 
and you have named the sky, you can start to say, well, which part of the sky are we in in our current age? That is, uh, I think we're coming out of Capricorn and into Aquarius. When we'll each part of the sky takes 22 or 2,000 some years. It's a, no, it's a, it's a 20, uh, 26,000 year cycle. It's a 26 and then divided by, let's do that, 26. It's like 26,500 maybe, I'm not sure. That, yeah, if it's, if it's 26,000 years, that divides obviously equally in, by 13 into 2,000 year ages. Um, and so perhaps that's, that's the, there was a great movie that used to float around on YouTube called Zeitgeist that, that talked about the ages of the earth and how it's encoded into the all, all the old religions. Anyway, that's one use of the word, word age. And the re, what I wanted to get into was the other use of the word age, which comes from um, the Latin seculum. And it's where we get the word secular. And it's an idea that there are uh, ages of humans versus ages uh, versus uh, um, uh, truly like kind of God ages, like they're celestial ages. So what we just talked about would be a celestial age, some kind of an age that is implicit in the structure of the universe, the earth moving through the universe, the motion of the stars. There's an, another idea, which is that humans also subdivide time to their own ages, namely the seculum, which is about a century. And it's defined in that way because it's defined as how long of a period of time before the last person who uh, observed some events dies? How long do you have to go before all the people who witnessed some event? Like till first, till primary source influence is gone. That's right. How long do you have to go before primary source influence is gone? And you call that an age. That's a, that's a human relative age. And that the, in ancient times that would have been called a seculum and it led to the word secular, meaning time periods of time that are kind of relevant to humans as a period, as opposed to time periods that are relevant to the transcendent, the universe, the cosmological times. And I think that they're important in, in the more mundane aspects of life, but that are very obvious right now, which are um, the, the cycles of productivity and war and, uh, um, and sickness that you see on earth. And I think it's, it's a remarkable um, realization that something like a seculum seems to happen in the data when you look at the progression of history that here we are uh, in 2020 with a pandemic and uh, verging on a global depression um, and perhaps uh, perhaps war, we'll see. Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily think that, but you, you look at 2020 and you say, how often did, is this surprising? Did things like this ever happen? And it's very notable, noticeable that about a hundred years ago, a, a global pandemic occurred within 10 years of a depression, within 10 years of a, a global war. Um, and that if you go back a hundred years before that, you get the largest uh, cholera outbreak in Europe within centuries, at this just at the tail end of the Napoleonic Wars um, that were were kind of led up, confl conflated with the uh, the uh, the Revolutionary War in the United States it happened 50 years earlier. Um, but you start to, I think I reflected a lot during COVID, wondering if 
some things that I had read about long waves were perhaps true. Be, and is this an opportunity to look around and actually see it in action? Um, you know, because most of that hundred-year period, kind of by definition, is is filled with time that most humans most humans will live in a time that is not at the edge of of, of the seculum, right? Or they won't want to remember the the edge of the seculum, right? We most people don't live to be a hundred. Right. Most people live to be, you know, back in the day, it would have been 30s and 40s if you're, you know, a normal person. And if you were lucky, maybe up into your 60s and 70s. But the capacity to live long has been noted since, you know, the Bible, right? You'd have people living for hundreds of years in the Bible. So it's, it's, it's long been the case that some people would live long. And by the time they die, then you get this, yeah, you get this forgetting effect, which is very profound. And, and I think that I just wanted to comment on that with relationship to the long, the cosmologically long cycles that we also have long cycles within human timeframes, um, which I think are potent. I think that they help understand uh, what we're seeing today. And as a, uh, a repeat of the type of thing that happens in human society when we forget how dangerous things become when we, when we overextend ourselves um, and, and mix too much and, and all these things, you know, the, somehow these things travel together. Uh, I, it's so weird, but it, it just make it, it always, it, it just kind of makes me kind of think about us as, as we're like little, or we're like little, we're like little ant colonies, mm-hmm. you know, that go through these little cycles. It's, it's very, yeah, it's very sobering and weird to think of that we can almost be predictable in that sense. But also kind of natural feeling, I have to say, right? Like most cycles are, when we think of cycles of the, the, the hours of the day going through a cycle or the, you know, the years, the, the seasons of the year, or the great cosmological cycles, those are really nice for grounding us in time. Mm-hmm. So yes, it makes you feel small, but many things that we have learned about our place in the universe has made us feel small, but it also maybe it connects us to, uh, to uh, the rhythms of, the, of the, the cosmos. Right, and that we aren't above them. We still have to play by the cycles. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I like that. All right, so Mr. Pablo, anyway, was there any- I just wanted to add that as a- <laughs> I know, that's a nice little bow to tie it up with. So is there anything else about this subject that like you, you, you know, like want to get off your chest or have thought about and then we didn't bring up? Um. No, not particularly. I spend a lot of my time writing uh, uh, celestial software. Um, I guess I'll post it in the uh, the link for the show. Okay. Uh, I think that it's important to, to to ground a lot of this in some of the studies of hard sciences and and to take it as a, a renewed opportunity to to study astronomy and like the kind of golden age that we're living living through with you know, all the satellites and the Hubble and and everything. Um, yeah, I, I like that side of it too, but that's that's another discussion. Yeah, that, that is cool, and I do like your Mandelbot, uh, your Mandelbot um, little thing you built to look into more of the as above, so below kind of thing, right? That's Where, true. That that is a another fun discussion. We could do math sometime. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm uh, uh, qualified to be the person to do the math discussion with you. But uh, to look at a Mandelbrot, all you need is uh, you know some hippie. Hippie uh, tie dyed on and right. listen listen to some psychedelics music. or something. Yeah, yeah. Psychedelics. Very cool. Um, yeah. Okay. So where can people find you? Um, 
like should they find you yeah. like do you <laughs> i'll post my 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 uh some of my software i guess okay. um no i'm on github and uh and you know some other places i'm not that hard to find once you know my name cool but thank You're you for having me thank uh, you for coming it's been a pleasure. Pleasure.